have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is Mark, the 11th chapter, verses 22 through 20, uh, let's see, through 26. Mark 11, 22 through 26. This is a very difficult passage of Scripture. Probably the most painful place in my life has been lodged in this passage of Scripture. Because I have to ask the question. It says, have faith in God. You command this mountain to be removed, it will be removed. If you ask, what you ask for in prayer will be done. But how many times have you prayed and nothing happened? I took this passage of Scripture and began to pray for a very specific answer. And finally, after a year and a half of daily prayer in this Scripture, God answered my prayer. Now, I have to ask, why does it take so long? And why is it so difficult to have a simple answer to prayer? Well, today we're going to deal with that. And it will probably not be comfortable for you any more than it has been comfortable for me. I don't like the options. Either Jesus is lying, that God is not telling us the truth, when he says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Either God is lying, and that's not true, or it is true, and I have a problem. Either the problem is Jesus, or the problem is me. Or some people like to escape the whole question by saying, well, Jesus answered prayers at one time, but he no longer responds. You know, he can he can answer prayers by saying yes, no, and wait. And so he's answered the prayer. Well, I refuse to let God off the hook that way. And I refuse to let myself off the hook that way. Could we be just very honest? Is God true? and every man a liar? Or is God a liar, and every man is true? Well, obviously, I cannot take the position that Jesus would tell me a lie. This is not the only passage. All through the scriptures, we find 
Jesus saying things like this, that he will answer prayer, that he will give to us what we ask of him. So if he does not give to us what we have asked of him, we must have asked amiss, or we must have a problem so that God will not hear our prayers. And if we have a problem that Jesus will not answer our prayers, can we be certain that we're saved? If God does not quickly answer our prayers, how do we know we're saved? Now, when God doesn't answer our prayer, we can very quickly go back and say, well, God's just waiting. Well, what's he waiting for? The obvious answer would be he's he's waiting for me. Well, what is he waiting for me about? What is he wanting me to do? How am I to to walk so that God will answer my prayers? And of course, we take a very interesting position about this issue. We become indifferent. And we say, why should we pray when God's not going to answer our prayer anyway? Or let's let prayer be everything I do in my life. Or let's let prayer be my meditation, as in yoga, a helpful therapeutic exercise to express how I feel. And then after I've expressed it, I feel better, and so I can go on my way and and things are all right. I can humanize prayer. One man I know reads all of his prayers. He doesn't expect God to answer them. They're just beautiful words strung together. They're ritual. But they don't mean anything, except they give him comfort in his heart. But there's no prayer he expects to have answered. So what needs to change so that God will answer my prayer? And if you knew that God was going to answer your prayer, would you pray more? Well, I obviously would answer that. Absolutely, I would pray more if I knew that someone was there listening. But if no one is there and the skies are closed up and my prayer bounces off the ceiling, well, then not so much. And it's easy then to become indifferent to prayer. Oh, prayer is something we like to talk about. It's a part of the artistic beauty of the Christian faith. But does it change the physical realm? And I've heard people say, oh, prayer does not change God. Well, if prayer doesn't change God, frankly, I don't want to pray anymore. 
I don't pray as an exercise of futility. I don't pray as an exercise of therapeutic value. I pray because there is a God in heaven who hears my prayer. But much of my life, he has not answered my prayers. At least, not in a way that I can discern. And I have often taken the position that the test of a man standing with God whether he can change the physical realm by his prayers. Let's liken it to a daddy with a son or a daughter. And that son or daughter comes to daddy and says, Daddy, can I have a bicycle? Daddy thinks about it. And of course he wants to get his little daughter or son a trike or a bicycle with training wheels on it. What daddy doesn't want to provide those special toys, that radio flyer wagon, that Daisy BB gun that I received early in my life and became very proficient with it. What daddy doesn't want to give a child toys? Safe, secure, but toys. Or to answer other requests that a child will make. Daddy, could we go today to the store? Why? Well, I want to buy mama a birthday present. Okay. Daddy says, I'll take you to the store. Would Daddy have taken her to the store had she not asked? No. No. He responds to his daughter's request. Does God respond to our request? In the same way, a daddy would respond to a child. Well, we're going to explore this question. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining today, this broadcast. I pray that you'll invite others to listen. Our website, nationalprayerchapel.com, has been completely renovated, and now a whole team of wonderful brothers in Christ are updating all of the data all of the back files, all the videos. I invite you to go and, and look at what's happened. It's, it's very easy now to operate. It loads very quickly. This video today is going directly into YouTube. And from there, it will go directly onto our webpage. So when you click the file, it'll just bring it straight up to you out of YouTube. I'm very grateful for all of these technological advances. So I invite you to go to nationalprayerchapel.com and check out our website and invite others to go to the website. Now, there's 
There's a key part of this passage that seems to be out of place in this Mark 11 passage. Let me read it for you. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So Jesus tacks on to this passage about prayer a condition. And the condition is that you forgive, that you not hold any grudges. I spoke with a brother last night about this passage, and he said, I become angry at God when he doesn't answer my prayers. And then he said, I become indifferent and I just give up. Well, he's so much like many of us. We've cried out to God. We've made our requests known before the Lord. We've gotten no response and have no answer. So we go about taking care of it the best way we can and wonder, where is God and why doesn't he answer my prayer? But there's this side note at the very end. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We've been speaking a lot in the last weeks about the anger in our hearts toward God. And most of us, yea, all of us, having been born as human beings, according to Romans, the eighth chapter, have hostility in our hearts toward God. Let me read it for you. This is found in Romans, the eighth chapter, verse six. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness." Now, there's a key here we need to grasp, and I'm going to spend a great deal of time in the coming days focusing on this issue. Our spirit must be alive in righteousness, in dikasune in the Greek, in innocence. And Jesus has told us in Mark 11 that being angry with someone destroys our innocence before God. 
he tells us that same thing over here in Matthew, the sixth chapter, in the midst of the Lord's sermon given on the Sermon of the Mount. In the Lord's Prayer, he said, this is how you should pray. So we want our prayers answered. So he's telling us now how to pray if we want our prayers answered. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So right at the beginning of our prayer, there has to be a clear understanding that we are praying in accord with the will of God. He says, give us today our daily bread. That is, give us your broken body. Give us your spilled blood. He said, my blood is real drink and my broken body is real food. Then he says in the prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Right in the heart, right in the heart of the Lord's Prayer. You recognize in the Lord's Prayer there are three requests to God, for God. One, we ask that your name be hallowed. Two, we ask that your kingdom come. Three, we ask that your will be done. And then there are three requests for us, for our hearts. The first request is, would you feed me, Jesus? The second request is, would you forgive me my debts? Would you forgive me my sin? And third, would you lead us not into temptation or the piercings? Lead us not into parasmus in the Greek, the, the temptation, the, the piercing. Deliver us from the evil one. That is not the devil. It's deliver us from toil and pain. Deliver us from what the piercing, the parasmus has brought into our lives. Right in the center, then, of the three requests that we make for ourselves to God is the prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. So right in the midst of the prayer to God, in the model prayer, is the prayer that God would deal with with our sins as we have dealt with those who have sinned against us. So it's very clear that this anger issue has to be resolved. It is a bitter root that goes into the heart of every person from, from childhood forward. And that when we come to Jesus, we are not controlled any longer by that angry, sinful nature, but we are controlled by the Spirit of the living God. Now it says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He's speaking here very specifically about deeds, things we do, things we say. 
So if I'm reading this correctly, anger blocks the answer to our prayers. And when we are hostile, as all men are, if we are hostile to God, then he will not answer our prayer. And most Christians have spent most of their lives angry with God. You have spent most of your life angry with God. You may not acknowledge that. You may not recognize it. But if you'll pray into it and begin to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your anger, you will quickly uncover it by the power of the blood of Jesus. This is the essential part of the mind that is hostile to God. When we don't get what we want, we either become angry and contentious, or we become indifferent and go somewhere else to try to find what our heart desires because God won't grant it to us. Many of you listening to this broadcast have become indifferent to God. Oh, you still go to church? You may even still give your tithes and offerings, but you are indifferent to God. One dear person has chosen to leave the National Prayer Chapel because we no longer have the half hour of praise and worship music. Well, this person finds their nurturance in music and not in the Word of God. There is an indifference in this person's heart to the Word of God, to the confrontation with the Spirit. I think there are many of you listening today who are very indifferent Your heart is not on fire for Jesus. Your heart is not stretching toward heaven. Your heart is instead just trying to survive. You may have lost your job. You may be in a financial difficult place, difficulty. You may be struggling with family members. You may. And so you'll cry out to God and ask him to help you And when there's no answer from heaven, the heavens are shut up. You become indifferent to prayer and indifferent to God. And indifference is just the other side of anger. Tell me, if you become indifferent to your wife, or you become indifferent to your husband, or you become indifferent to your boss, how long will you survive? How long will your marriage survive? How long will you keep the job if you're just indifferent to what your boss thinks or wants and you're not responsive to his requests? Will you survive in that job? 
Will your marriage survive if you're indifferent to your wife? You no longer show her the affection you used to show her? Instead, there are flashes of anger and rage that burst through the surface of indifference. Is that a healthy marriage or is that just being roommates living in the same house because of financial convenience? Indifference is anger. Indifference is hatred. Before a person can begin to make progress on the journey toward the celestial city, you're going to have to deal with the anger that rages in your heart. Or you're going to have to deal with the depression that pushes your heart down. Depression is merely anger turned upside down. You're going to have to deal with that depression. It is to be repented of. Discouragement, depression. It's just anger that you can't have your way, but you're not free to talk about it. It's too dangerous. Indifference. It's just upside-down anger. It's the other side of the coin. You see, as long, according to Romans, as long as we are hostile toward God, we are enemies of God. I want to suggest to you that many of our prayers God has not answered because we've had no faith that God would answer our prayers. And so we've become indifferent and cold toward Jesus. We have become angry and then finally drifted into, I don't care, doesn't matter. I'll just live my life. I'll make it the best I can. Jesus is saying, if you want your prayers answered, in Mark 11, 23 through 26, you're going to have to deal with this anger of your heart, this lack of of forgiveness. And in the Lord's Prayer, says the lord will not he will not forgive you your sins if you don't forgive those who sin against you can i be so bold as to say that many of you listening to this broadcast today and i've been very much included in that you're going to have to forgive god what did god sin no but we've held a grudge against him because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. And it's this hostility, this anger, this bitterness that the children of Israel faced as they were taken into the desert. And they were angry about having to eat the manna. And they were angry about not having the water source immediately when they wanted it. They were angry about walking out into this desert and leaving the flesh pots of Egypt and all the good times and the parties they had in Egypt. They were mad. 
They would not believe God. They would not put their faith in the Lord God of heaven. They were mad. Stir them up and they're ready to stone to death Moses. Every person who wants their prayers answered is going to have to deal with the desert journey. You're going to have to deal with being led in a way that you're not comfortable. You're going to have to give up being your own person and recognize that the God of heaven rules over heaven and earth. The Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to begin to talk about why our prayers aren't answered, the first and foremost answer that Jesus gives us is either because you are angry with him or you are angry with your brothers and sisters, your wife or your husband or your kids or your boss. You hold a grudge. You don't like the desert you find yourself in and you don't like the manna Jesus is giving you or you don't like something else about your life and you want it changed. Well, the only way God has to begin to grow you up is to bring you into a place where you are uncomfortable. And so he carefully arranges circumstances to bring you into a place where you are in desperate need. And in that desperate need, you have a choice. You can respond with anger and rage and bitterness, and you can turn away from the living God because you can say, I prayed and he didn't answer, so I guess I've got to go do what I've got to do. You know, the children of Israel said that. They said, let's let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt to our slavery. Well, God set it up so they couldn't go back to Egypt. They would have died before they could have gotten back. There would have been no manna falling on the ground. They would have been on their own out in that desert, and they could not go back and cross the Red Sea. It was closed. That's why God closed them into that desert. They were either going to believe in him and follow him, or they were going to die. Now, let me give you a dire warning. You can die in the desert in which you find yourself. You have no guarantee that you can escape the desert. You are going to have to meet the conditions of God if he is going to answer your prayers, and he is going to set it up so that you will not be able to take care of yourself. Now, he has a more difficult time doing that in America because in America we have constructed all kinds of things to make sure we can cover ourselves from credit cards, doctors. We have a whole lifestyle of being able to take care of ourselves. And because of that, we never really feel the pinch and the bite very often of the desert. This is such a desperate situation. 
I don't know how to even begin to tell you how how painful this is for me. It has meant absolutely being crucified with Jesus. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've dedicated my life to following after him. And yet I do not have Pentecost power, which for me is a clear sign that there are still areas of my heart where hostility reigns, where self-sufficiency rules, where selfishness resides. It gives me great evidence of my immaturity and my smallness. I have nothing to boast about except Jesus Christ. It's the National Prayer Chapel I pastor. The name is a bad joke except it was given to us by Jesus. So I know it's meant to be a descriptor of who he's calling us to be and who who he is making us to be, a people of intercession and prayer, a people who meet the standards of God so that he answers our prayers. And many times he has answered my prayers, For example, month by month, I meet this impossible, I face this impossible goal of paying for this radio broadcast. And as I wait upon the Lord and the congregation waits upon the Lord, we're very small. And we cry out to God. Somehow each month, he sends the resources and we're able to continue this broadcast. I see that as a miracle of the grace of God. I do not take it for granted. He moves in your hearts to contribute month by month. I don't take that for granted. So I don't try to say that he does not answer prayer. He does answer prayer. But he does not answer for most of us in the manner we would be most comfortable with him answering our prayers, namely, Quickly and painlessly, he does not answer most of us in that way because most of us don't hear plainly from him what his will is. And God does want us to wait upon him. But usually, he's waiting on us. He wants us to come through. He wants us to understand that he is there to answer and to walk with us. I think of that incredible passage of Scripture. Let me look it up for you quickly.
It's found in 1 Peter, the first chapter. Let me read it for you. I'll begin in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, may be refined by fire. That's the desert journey. May be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, salvation of your souls. So this waiting upon God must not be allowed to turn our hearts into indifference or coldness. It must not be allowed to cause us to be angry with God or to be angry with each other. He wants to get to the very bottom of this issue of hostility. The whole gospel of Jesus Christ is about changing the mind of man that is hostile to God. changing it by crucifixion so that there is a tenderness in our heart. There is a fire of love and and faithfulness in our heart for Jesus. Now, if we go to Revelation, the third chapter, we find there seven messages given to seven churches. In each of these seven churches, there is one single command. And that is, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Will overcome what? Sin. But sin is hostility to God. All sin involves anger, indifference to God. And he's saying that every to every one of these seven churches, he's saying, you must overcome this anger of your heart. You must overcome it. You must deal with it. Now, to overcome, uh, the ESV translation uses the word Conquer. You must conquer. Well, whether you use the word translated as overcome or conquer, it's very clear that there's a battle involved. There is a warfare involved. That there is intentional decision on our part about how we will respond to the circumstances that are crowding out our lives whether it be financial, emotional, spiritual, there is an overcoming, there is a conquering that is required in each of these seven churches. And most theologians would say that these seven churches, while having 
a core of truth in each of the messages for each age of the church, most would say that the church at Laodicea represents the age of today's church, particularly the modern church, and for me, the American church, because I live in America. And so he begins in the letter Jesus does, this is the risen Christ. Now, while I treasure everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I treasure what Jesus taught and what he said. I particularly treasure the Sermon on the Mount. But I treasure all of the New Testament. Particularly for me, I treasure the Gospel of John. That is my favorite gospel. I read them all many times each year, but that's my favorite gospel. And then I love First John again and Revelation. Those are my three favorite books in all of the Scripture. But this church at Laodicea is said to represent the age we live in. Let me begin to read it for you. We won't begin nearly to cover it today, but we're going to walk carefully through this church. These are the words of the Amen. This is Revelation, the third chapter, verse 14. These are the words of the Amen. That is, these are the words of the one who says when it's over. This is Jesus. The true witness, the ruler of all of God's creation. And we find in Colossians 1, in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, in Hebrews, the first chapter, that Jesus is referred to as the creator God. He is fully God and fully man. He is equal in every respect to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God with three manifestations, three persons, but one God. He says, I know your deeds. He opens this message by saying, look, I know what you do. I know how you behave. I've been watching you. And he says, I I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. In other words, the mark of the of the Laodicea church in the modern age is indifference to Jesus. And this must be overcome. And that indifference is anger at God, where we have turned to the world to satisfy the hunger of our heart, and we have dismissed the God of heaven. We have not walked in faith in Jesus. Faith in the Old Testament means fidelity to. Faith in the New Testament means, it's pistis is in the Greek, it means absolutely, totally, completely convinced. Well, convinced of what? That Jesus rules. That he holds our future in his hands that he is who he says he is. He is the God of heaven. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who died on Calvary. He is the one who raised on the third day and ascended into the heavens, and he will come again in glory and power. We are utterly convinced of this, and so this becomes our reality, not the world. 
We have come out of the world. We are separate from the world. We no longer enjoy all of the entertainment of the world. If you still are focused on the entertainment of the world, you've not come out yet. You're angry with God. If you still sit in front of the movies and the television, there's a part of your heart that is indifferent to Jesus. You do not walk in faith. So he says, I know your deeds, and I know you're not cold or hot. I know you're just lukewarm. You're tepid. He says, I wish you were either, either one, either hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold, he's saying. But because you're not, because you're lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. So these are people who call themselves Christians, who have the rituals of the Christian church, who keep the holidays of the Christian church. These are people who say, I'm a Christian. And he's saying, your heart is filled with indifference to me. You're not on fire. Your heart is not burning with joy and with expectation. You're not in the prayer closet crying out to me. You're not talking to me. You cast me aside. I'm taking you in. I'm tasting you. And you make me vomit. You make me sick. Now, I told you it would be uncomfortable. The last thing I want is for someone I love to say to me, Ray, you make me sick. You make me want to vomit. What horrible words those would be between a husband and wife. What horrible words between two people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus is saying to this church of Laodicea, to this modern church in America. He's saying, You're so indifferent to me. You are so unresponsive to my to my love. I'm about to vomit. I'm so sick of you. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. In other words, Jesus, I don't need you. I can handle this. I've got my own life. Thank you very much. And I'm willing to give a little bit of my life to you. I'm willing to go to church. I'm willing to make even tithes and offerings for you. But I want my life. My life is together, and I like what's happening in my life. And he says, but you do not realize that you are wretched. Well, this word is only used twice in all of the scriptures. It's used back here in Romans. Let me turn quickly to it. I want to read this to you. I want you to see the context of this passage so that you'll know what the word actually actually means. He says, Romans 7, verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
And his response is, through Jesus Christ, I'll be delivered. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. In other words, I'm hostile, I'm mad. I'm not at peace with God at all. And who's going to rescue me from this anger that's in my heart? I'm a wretched man. Well, let's talk for a moment about what that word wretched actually means in the Greek. It's made up of two words. The first is, you are, you are weighed with weights. In other words, you're put on the scale and you don't measure up. So a wretched man is a man who does not measure up to what God is expecting. And the last part of this word wretched, we already spoke about it, comes from the Greek word parasmus or piercing that brings great difficulty. It's an assaying term. Like with metals, when you have to assay the gold ore to see how much gold is in that. And he's saying, look, I'm assaying your life and you don't measure up. You're a lightweight. You're wretched. So he's saying to the modern American church, you don't measure up. You're wretched. You've been assayed. I've looked at your deeds. I know who you are. You don't measure up. And, and, and you say, and I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm indifferent. I'm cold-hearted. So what? What are you going to do about it, Jesus? Oh, we don't say that. Most out of time for today's broadcast. I'm not going to give you any sweet words except to say the anger root has to be taken out of our lives. And it can only be taken out by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about the true condition of our hearts. And then we're going to talk about step by step the way Jesus will rescue us if we will allow him. Remember, salvation is a rescue job that Jesus is willing to perform for each of us. But we must come to terms with the real condition of our hearts and stop the indifference. Almighty God, I plead today for your people. I plead you will uncover the indifference and the anger and the hostility of our hearts that the bitter root could be utterly uprooted and taken from us, that we could walk in righteousness in a manner that would allow you to answer our prayers quickly, to speak to us, to not be distant and far away, but, Lord, to be right with us, directing and ordering our steps You said you only did what the Father told you to do, and you only spoke the word your Father gave you to speak. I ask, Lord, that that would be true of us as well. Lord, we're so far from you. 
I pray today that you will begin a work of revival in the heart of every person listening to this broadcast, that your mercy will overshadow and cover us. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Again, I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Thank you for listening to this broadcast. Ask some friends, are you angry with God? Ask if if they're angry. And talk about your own anger with your family. Let Jesus begin to deal with your heart. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and I'll talk to you soon. With great joy Now unto him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory